Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 2, The Survivors. In March 1848, Congressman Abraham Lincoln exchanged letters with David and Solomon. Specifically, Solomon Lincoln of Massachusetts and David Lincoln of Virginia. Solomon had written first, asking a Massachusetts representative to pass some family questions on to Abraham. Lincoln wrote back quickly, telling Solomon everything he knew of his family history. Solomon's letter seems to have aroused Lincoln's interest in the subject because he asked a colleague from Virginia, who represented the area where his father was born, if any of his constituents were Lincolns. This congressman, by the name of James McDowell, gave him the name of an old man named David Lincoln, who Abraham wrote to near the end of the month. David, as it turned out, was a first cousin once removed of Abraham's, news that the younger Lincoln received enthusiastically. Solomon was a more distant relative, though neither he nor Abraham realized it at the time. To both men, Abraham sketched out the family history he knew. A grandfather who moved his family from Virginia to Kentucky, a bit of information about his father, and as much as Abraham knew about his two uncles. To David, Lincoln sent a list of his own questions, like, quote, What was your grandfather's Christian name? Was he, or not, a Quaker? About what time did he emigrate from Berks County, Pennsylvania to Virginia? Do you know anything of your family, or rather I may now say our family, farther back than your grandfather? Abraham, in fact, knew very little family history before his own grandfather, beyond what he told Solomon was, quote, a vague tradition that his great-grandfather had been a Quaker in Pennsylvania. He wrote, quote, Owing to my father being left an orphan at the age of six years, in poverty, and in a new country, he became a wholly uneducated man, which I suppose is the reason why I know so little of our family history. I believe I can say nothing more that would at all interest you. The defensive embarrassment in this line is striking. Listen again to Abraham's description of his father Thomas. Holy, uneducated man. Adverb, adjective, noun, without any leavening words of compliment or sympathy. Lincoln never liked talking about his father, and when he did, he had a hard time concealing his contempt for Thomas Lincoln, a tough but scarred branch of the family tree. And Lincoln almost never spoke of his mother Nancy. He knew something of the sadness and struggle that had marked his parents' lives. But Abraham saw very little of himself in his father, a man he spent the first part of his life trying to escape. Thomas and Abraham, and David and Solomon, belonged to a family that, by the time of these letters, had lived in America for two centuries. The Lincolns descended from a man named Samuel Lincoln, a teenage weaver's apprentice who immigrated from England to Massachusetts in 1637. Abraham belonged to a restless branch of the family. In the 18th century, each generation took the family south and west. From Massachusetts, Lincoln's ancestors moved to New Jersey and then to Pennsylvania, where some of them were in fact Quakers. The Lincolns shared some traits in common. 
For one, they loved biblical names. They had sons named Mordecai, Abraham, Thomas, and Isaac, who had sons named Mordecai, Abraham, Thomas, and Isaac. These Lincolns also had a hunger for land, acquiring hundreds and often thousands of acres after each move. In colonial America, land was wealth, and these Lincolns were also fairly prosperous. In Pennsylvania, the family owned iron businesses and belonged to the colony's elite. In 1768, John Lincoln took the family to the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. There, John acquired about 600 acres of land. Before 1780, he gave about a third of it to his third son, named Abraham. This Abraham was President Lincoln's grandfather. Abraham, born in 1744, is usually called Captain Abraham Lincoln or Captain Lincoln to distinguish him from his more famous namesake. Captain Lincoln served in the Virginia militia and fought in Lord Dunmore's War, a clash in what is today West Virginia between colonists and Shawnees who were trying to defend their lands from white encroachment. In the American Revolution, Captain Lincoln served in a fairly undistinguished campaign to capture Fort Detroit that never got close to its target. His Virginia land was exceptionally fertile, but in the early 1780s, Captain Lincoln decided to sell it and try his luck in Kentucky. We don't know Lincoln's exact motivation for doing so. But for his ancestors, moving west had always been a good bet. Virginians taking their chances in Kentucky followed the Wilderness Road, marked by Daniel Boone, who is a distant relative of the Lincolns. But it was less a road and more a narrow and dangerous path. Wagons can't travel on it until the 1790s. People can ride the Wilderness Road on horses, but many settlers walked the hundreds of miles of the trail, sometimes carrying household items on their heads. In addition, much of this narrow road goes uphill, into the mountains, where travelers get full exposure to the elements. And we can't forget there were already people living here, Native Americans fighting to defend their homeland. Historian Michael Burlingame writes that in 1784 alone, about 100 people were killed on the trail. Whites coming to, or invading Kentucky, usually settled near stockades, called stations. We don't know what Captain Lincoln, his wife Bathsheba, or their children saw as they traveled the Wilderness Road. We do know that Captain Lincoln started grabbing land as soon as he arrived, until by the mid-1780s, he claimed over 5,000 acres east of Louisville. The militia captain had started to replicate the family pattern. But Captain Lincoln would come to a very different end. Sometime in May 1786, Captain Lincoln was building a fence with his youngest son, Thomas, about eight years old at the time. Abraham's other sons, Mordecai, age 15, and Josiah, who was about 11, were working nearby. As Captain Lincoln finished his work, a rifle fired from the nearby woods. Lincoln was struck and killed instantly, falling next to Thomas. As soon as they heard the gunshot, Mordecai and Josiah ran. Mordecai to the house to get a gun, Josiah up the road to get help from a nearby settlement. In the panic, they forgot their little brother sitting stunned by the body of his father. Thomas Lincoln told the story of what happened next for the rest of his life. This is the version given by Augustus Chapman, who married into the family and may have heard the story directly from Thomas. According to Augustus, quote, 
Mordecai Lincoln succeeded in escaping to the house, barricaded the door, seized his rifle, and repaired to the loft of the house. On taking a survey through a porthole, he discovered his father lying dead where he had been at work. His brother Josiah he could not see at all, but he discovered his brother Thomas in the hands of a very large Indian, who had him by the nap of the neck and seat of the breeches, and was a-running down the lane with him. Just at this time, the Indian stopped and faced toward the house. Young Thomas Lincoln had just remarked to the Indian, Don't kill me! Take me prisoner! The Indian looked down at him and smiled. Just at this time, the crack of a rifle was heard, the Indian bounded high into the air and fell dead. Young Thomas Lincoln sprang to his feet and escaped to the house. His mother unbarred the door, admitted him into the house, and he was saved. The traumatic effect of his father's murder and his own escape from kidnapping, or worse, could only have left scars on Thomas. As we said, Thomas Lincoln told this story throughout his life. Abraham Lincoln said, quote, It was the legend, more strongly than all others, imprinted on my mind and memory. And one wonders if talking over and over again about the attack, and details like how Mordecai aimed at a silver pendant on the Indian's chest, had some kind of therapeutic effect for Thomas. But Captain Lincoln's death also had major economic consequences for the boy. At the time, Kentucky followed the law of primogeniture, which meant the bulk of Captain Lincoln's land went to Mordecai, the eldest son. Mordecai Lincoln would become a wealthy farmer who one person remembered as, quote, a man of great drollery, and it could almost make you laugh to look at him. Abraham Lincoln himself would remark that, quote, Uncle Mord had run off with all the talents of the family. Later on, Mordecai would move further west into Illinois, continuing the family pattern. But Mordecai's fortune was disaster for Josiah and Thomas. They got nothing from their father's estate. And Thomas was about to experience some major downward mobility. The boy Mordecai Lincoln saved would grow up to become one of the most argued-about characters in the Abraham Lincoln story. In its traditional telling, Abraham Lincoln's father is an oaf some of the time and a dimwit all of the time. The word used most to describe him is shiftless. William Herndon called Lincoln's father, quote, slow of movement mentally and physically, and, quote, careless, inert, and dull. Now, the revisionist pushback against this portrait has been going on since the 1920s, and contemporary documents show Thomas engaged in civic service, including jury duty, that suggest a more respectable man than Herndon's picture. Yet the traditional shiftless portrait of Thomas Lincoln, as historian Charles Strozier notes, probably captures Abraham Lincoln's feelings about his father, even if the son was not a reliable narrator of Thomas's life. David Herbert Donald, who was sympathetic to Thomas Lincoln, wrote that, quote, in all of his published writings, and indeed, even in reports of hundreds of stories and conversations, he had not one favorable word to say about his father. As we'll see, Abraham's hostility to Thomas stems from many sources, but the key breach comes over what father and son prioritize in their lives, and perhaps more importantly, what they think possible. On one point, historians agree with Abraham Lincoln. Thomas Lincoln's life was one of struggle. As a child, he was hired out by his mother Bathsheba for farm and construction work. Thomas's early life is one of constant, difficult labor in the chores that were routine on the frontier, plowing, planting, and clearing land. 
Keep in mind, too, that Thomas lived in a slave state. If Thomas Lincoln was hired out for a project, he might have been working alongside slaves, whose owner pocketed all their earnings and who had little incentive to bargain for higher pay. In the late 1790s, Thomas ended up at his uncle Isaac's farm in Tennessee, where he learned carpentry, which seems to have become his preferred way of earning a living. Thomas got title to a 238-acre farm in 1803, possibly with the help of his mother or brother, but he ended up leasing it to his sister. Farming seems to have had little attraction for the young man. Physically, Thomas stood 5 foot 8 or 5 foot 10 and was strong and compactly built. Dennis Hanks, a cousin of Abraham Lincoln's, said, quote, "It was difficult to find or feel a rib in his body, and this trait became an asset for Thomas in frontier wrestling." in which he excelled. He had a large nose, and his hair was thick, messy, and black. Everyone who knew Thomas Lincoln said he was honest, unpretentious, and good-natured, with a gift for telling stories, a talent he would pass down to his son. Thomas Johnston, Thomas's step-grandson, said, quote, he was a social man, loved company, people, and their sports very much. One of his neighbors, somewhat meanly, called Thomas, quote, an excellent specimen of poor white trash. But a friend of Abraham Lincoln's who visited Thomas Lincoln when he was near 60 found him a funny and charming host, if, in his word, backwoods-ish. Beneath this basic warmth lay deeper troubles. One neighbor who knew Thomas Lincoln in Kentucky said he suffered spells, which led Thomas to wander alone in the fields or woods for hours at a time. Thomas's brother Mordecai and other members of his family appear to have suffered from depression, and Thomas may have as well. Johnston, after calling Thomas social, added that, quote, He seemed to me to border on the serious, reflective. How much these distances shaped his relationship with his family, especially his son, can only be guessed at. That relationship, of course, is why Thomas Lincoln draws any attention today. Before we get into it, let's make an obvious but essential point. Thomas Lincoln grew up on the American frontier at the end of the 18th century, with the values and horizons of the time. For example, some people who knew Thomas Lincoln felt it important for history to know that he once squared off with the best wrestler in Breckenridge County, Kentucky, and defeated him easily. Thomas Lincoln traveled in social circles that valued strength and wit. Learning was valuable in how it helped a person carry out their daily duties, but few thought that education could lead to a better life. Thomas had little access to schooling. He could sign his name, but was otherwise unable to write. And he spent his life trying to survive, whether through farming, carpentry, or day labor, and had few, if any, examples of how education might help a person escape that situation. In fact, Reading carried a whiff of laziness, especially when other chores called. Now, Abraham's priorities will diverge sharply from Thomas's. He was a more ambitious person than his father, but Abraham probably had more access to books, and he certainly had more access to newspapers than his father ever did. As a result, the son grew up with more of a sense of the possible than the father, and Abraham would come to deeply resent the manual work that, for Thomas, was as part of life as one's own heartbeat. In his mid-twenties, 
Thomas Lincoln arrived in Hardin County, Kentucky, now LaRue County, in the central part of the state. He went to work as an apprentice carpenter for a man named Joseph Hanks. And it was here he met Nancy Hanks, his future wife. Unfortunately, we know much less about Nancy than we do her future husband. By the time people really began delving into her life, Nancy Hanks Lincoln had been dead nearly 50 years, her grave and unmarked hollow on top of a hill in southern Indiana. Where there are some striking anecdotes about Thomas Lincoln, the stories that could give us a sense of Nancy Hanks as a living, breathing human being are few and far between. What we do know suggests a woman who went through trials as hard as her husband's. And they started with her name. Nancy Hanks was born in 1784 to Lucy Hanks, a 16 or 17-year-old servant. Her father's identity is unknown. That Nancy carried her mother's surname suggests she was illegitimate, something Abraham Lincoln himself believed. Lincoln told William Herndon in 1850 that his maternal grandfather was a Virginia planter or large farmer who Lincoln credited with giving his mother her intellect, and by implication, his own. But according to Herndon, Lincoln didn't think highly of this grandfather. He said, quote, My mother's mother was poor and credulous, and she was shamefully taken advantage of by the man. A comment like this, if Herndon's memories were correct, raises questions about the nature of the relationship that produced Nancy Hanks, and in particular, whether that relationship was consensual. We will, of course, never know the details of what happened, but if that quote was correct, Lincoln felt his grandmother was violated in some way. Now, in the late 18th century, sex outside of marriage could get you arrested. In 1789, Lucy Hanks was indicted on a charge of fornication, though she was never tried. Under the law, an illegitimate child is considered nobody's child. The parents have no obligation to raise them, and upkeep is supposed to be provided by local churches. A woman, especially a servant like Lucy, had very little ability to hold a father responsible. If she sued to get the father to provide upkeep, and won, the money went to the local church. And if she was a servant, she could be fined. This is a class-driven arrangement. In a 1967 article, Dominic Lassick wrote that Virginia law tended to look at illegitimacy as a problem of the lower classes. Describing a 1769 law on the subject, Lassick wrote, quote, If the mother was a servant, she was bound to serve for another year on the expiration of her contract, or pay the master 1,000 pounds of tobacco, to compensate him for his loss and trouble. Beyond the courts, illegitimacy was a sign of sexual immorality and society viewed illegitimate children as tainted, and perhaps doomed to a dissolute life. As Michelle Lorraine Sauer noted in an essay on the novel Mole Flanders, whose protagonist is illegitimate, quote, The 18th century has often been called the century of illegitimacy, in which the concept of illegitimacy was viewed and treated as a birth defect, a disease of the soul that produced an innate depravity in the bastard child. These misbegotten children are seen as marked from birth by the plague of illegitimacy to live a life diseased by the sin of their conception. Gossip chased Nancy Hanks throughout her short life and pursued her for decades after. 
One man who grew up around Lincoln's birthplace claimed in the 1880s that Nancy was a loose woman. And some of Herndon's Kentucky correspondents, who looked down on both Thomas and Nancy, tried to sell Herndon on a theory that Abraham Lincoln was the product of an affair between Nancy and a man named Abraham Enloe. This is almost certainly nonsense, but it captures the nastiness that Nancy Hanks had to deal with. Nancy Hanks had no relationship with her father. Her mother appears to have been a distant presence in Nancy's life. Nancy was raised by her grandparents and may not have lived with Lucy until she was nine, when her grandfather died. Lucy, who had by this point married, took her in for a few years, but by age 12, Nancy was living with Lucy's sister Elizabeth and her husband Thomas Sparrow. The Sparrows appear to have been a stabilizing force in her life and in the lives of other members of the Hanks family. Some of those who knew Nancy called her Nancy Sparrow, partly a way to cover up her illegitimacy, but testimony perhaps to the bond between Nancy and her aunt and uncle. Still, it was a less than ideal childhood. Herndon, who interviewed people who knew Nancy, was of the impression that she was, quote, badly and roughly raised. Those who knew Nancy Hanks considered her a bright, intelligent, and religious person who projected a sense of calm and sorrow. John Hanks, Nancy's first cousin, said, quote, She was beyond all doubt an intellectual woman, rather extraordinary, if anything. Her nature was kindness, mildness, tenderness, sadness, obedience to her husband. Nat Grigsby, a friend of the family, called Nancy, quote, superior to her husband in every way. She was a brilliant woman, a woman of great good sense and modesty. Herndon said Lincoln thought of his mother as, quote, a kind of genius, a great-hearted and a big-headed woman who was, quote, oversold with goodness, tenderness, and sympathy. Nancy could read but was unable to write. It was a rudimentary education, but it was also more than many other women on the frontier enjoyed. She was, by some accounts, a careless dresser, a trait she passed on to her son, and a devout Baptist. At camp meetings, according to Burlingame, quote, Nancy would shout in an attempt to get others to repent. There are contradictory reports of Nancy's appearance, but most people said she was as tall as or taller than her husband, with blue or hazel eyes. She may have had dark hair. She almost certainly had a long, lean frame. Dennis Hanks called Nancy Spare Maid, which sounds much like her son. David Turnham, a neighbor of the Lincolns in Indiana, said Nancy Hanks, quote, was rather coarse-featured, had the appearance of a laboring woman, but nevertheless was a good-looking woman. And here we should note that Nancy worked on and off as a servant throughout her life. In a later letter about a failed relationship, Lincoln compared a lost love to his mother, who he claimed was wrinkled and toothless, a possible portrait from Nancy's life, or of his stepmother Sarah, but equally possibly a mean-spirited exaggeration written by a young man smarting from a rejection. Like her husband, Nancy may have suffered depression. Sad and sadness come up in most descriptions of her. But unlike Thomas Lincoln, Nancy appears to have avoided company, possibly due to depression or to the gossip that seemed to follow her wherever she went. People who spoke of Nancy Lincoln in the 1860s usually praised her, but often struggled to come up with concrete memories of the woman. 
a reflection, perhaps, of a retiring soul. The courtship of Thomas Lincoln and Nancy Hanks took place at camp meetings where the couple allegedly stayed out later than was considered socially acceptable at the time. The match appears to have provoked some scorn. In one story, an old woman who looked down on Thomas Lincoln encouraged Nancy to break off the relationship and move to nearby Washington County. As the story goes, Nancy got on the wagon going there, and Thomas jumped right in with her. However the journey was made, Nancy Hanks and Thomas Lincoln married in Washington County on June 12, 1806. After the wedding, the couple moved to Elizabethtown, possibly because Nancy wanted to live closer to the Sparrows. Their first child, Sarah, was born there on February 10, 1807. The following year, Thomas purchased Sinking Spring Farm, a 300-acre property named for a spring of clear, cold water emerging from a cave. Thomas built a cabin that was about 16 by 18 feet that probably had a grease paper window and a dirt floor. It's in this habitation that Abraham Lincoln was born on Sunday, February 12, 1809. He was named for Thomas's father. Thomas Lincoln was 31 years old when his son was born. Nancy Lincoln was 25. They had both grown up without fathers and spent their youths engaged in physically taxing labor and dealing with the disdain of their neighbors. They had little access to education and weren't raised to aim for a better life or a more comfortable one. But for all that, Nancy and Thomas's natures remained fundamentally kind, and they made a good pair. As Nat Grigsby, their Indiana neighbor, said, quote, Thomas Lincoln and his wife were really happy in each other's presence. They loved one another. Next time, we'll talk about Abraham Lincoln's childhood in Kentucky. We'll also look at Thomas Lincoln's struggles to hold on to what was his, which would eventually force the family across the Ohio River.